other than God himself. Other than God himself. Recognize this, that there is no other force stronger on earth than the body of Christ. Other than God himself, there is no other force stronger on earth than the body of Christ. It becomes strong as the Holy Spirit infuses it with his power in order to accomplish the work that Jesus has assigned his disciples to accomplish while he went away. But the strength of the church is also magnified when we as individuals, when we come together in unity. Interesting enough, it is not only true of one particular local church, you know, the church where you attend, but it's also true of God's Catholic church, his, his universal church, Big C. What can stop the church worldwide if it was truly unified on all fronts? If the church managed to get together on all things, what could stop the power of the church as the Holy Spirit infuses it on earth? And you know the answer to that is absolutely nothing. Yet, we must also stop and think about one of the greatest enemies of the church as well. And one of, one of the greatest enemies of the church is disunity. A church that is not unified not only has diminished spiritual power, but becomes a poor witness and a testimony of the power of Christ. Statements always seem to fly around like, uh, not even Christians are united. Not even Christians are together on that. You guys are divided on many things. In fact, not only can this be true of an individual church, but many churches and the church worldwide. But as you can imagine, without a doubt, God wants his church united. He wants us to unite. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. First we discover that God wants us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Verse 1. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
Amen? So here in verse 1, Paul urges believers to faithfulness from the vantage point of him being a prisoner for the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the original text, the original text would tell you uh, as him being uh, the prisoner for the Lord. This is important for us to understand because uh, as Paul began this epistle, he had mentioned before, I think in, in, in chapter 3, but then he mentions again that he was a prisoner for the Lord. Why would he bring an issue like that up concerning unity in the church? Why? Paul, again, he does not say, therefore, I urge you, and I want you to listen carefully, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now listen to this. Again, in the original text, Paul says that, therefore, I urge you. Then he says this. He says, I, as a prisoner for the Lord. He's pointing to himself, saying that he has reached a point in his spiritual journey in which he has been locked up because of Jesus Christ. If, indeed, Caesar had, had ultimate authority, Paul would understand that his imprisonment was from Caesar. So in other words, why didn't Paul say that I am a prisoner because of Caesar? See, Paul, he didn't say that. Paul says that he was a prisoner because of whom? Because of the Lord, because of Jesus Christ. But as you may or may not know, even the authorities in operation in the world are in position. Why? Because God has allowed them to be in that position. That's right. Whether we're talking about good or bad, God has allowed every single person who's in leadership in this world, he has allowed them to be in that position because he has some purpose in mind. But you're saying to me, but what about this person, right? What about the ruler over here who's a dictator? And what about the person over here who's killing folks? And all I have to say, do you know Scripture, right? Do you know Scripture? Consider the fact that the Lord used wicked Assyria, that the Lord used wicked Babylon to do what? To bring Israel captive to bring discipline upon those nations. You see, what happens is, and something that we must consider as well within the body of Christ, what happens is that even though there's nations here and there that they're wicked, you're saying, how can God use them? That oftentimes God is holding back their wickedness. God holds back their wickedness. Because he's calling his people, or those who say that they are his people, he's calling them to repentance. And ultimately, what happens is, when a nation, according to scripture, when a nation does not ultimately repent before God, all those nations who are all over the place, they are just waiting. They are just waiting to unleash 
Everything that they've been vying to do. You know, Assyria, uh, they had one goal, and that was to take over the world. Babylon, they had one goal, and that is to take over the world. As a matter of fact, one of those leaders had told uh, uh, King Hezekiah that you're sitting up there, uh, you're sitting up there relying upon your God, but don't you know it is your God that has sent us to sack your nation? Do you realize not that's what Scripture has said? So uh, there are powers that are in play all over the world, <laughs> ready to sack any nation who used to call God their God. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, that he is holding them back with the hopes that his people will do what they're supposed to do. So this is what I believe that we see is going on in the church today. All those folks who are saying uh, that I'm nuns, that I'm not affiliated with church, I have nothing to do with the church. That what's happening is that even in this moment uh, that we have, uh, we see the difference between the wheat and the tares. Remember Jesus had told uh, uh, the person within that parable uh, uh, that they said that they wanted to pull up uh, the, the tares from the wheat and, and God says no, 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 you just hold on because there's coming a time that you're going to be able to tell the difference. You see, when the tares and the wheat, when they're very young, you can't tell them apart. But you see, when they mature and they become full-blown, eventually you can tell who they are and you can just pull them out left and right. This is what's happening within the church, I, I, I really believe. That there is sifting that is going on. Uh, that now there's coming a time when all those who used to call themselves Christians, that they could care less. I'm not a Christian. I could care less about Jesus. I could care less about the church. Some of the same people who were part of the church, you see, when they were young and they were growing, uh, they looked just like everyone else, so you can't pull them up. But now... They are rearing their heads. But Jesus Christ, he is calling his church to task now. He's saying, be the church. Be strong. Be dedicated. Be committed to the cause. And the cause, brothers and sisters, is not to our nation. You better believe that. The cause is to the person of Jesus Christ. And him alone. So believers, you, me, we are urged to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. So as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Paul wants us to know that it is Jesus who has locked him up, but I've given my life, so therefore if I've given my life for Christ, that you also must walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says that the part of the calling of a believer may be to suffer. And again, folks, they don't like to hear that. They like to hear that I am a victor in Jesus Christ and Satan get up under my foot. They like to hear that. Uh, they don't like to hear uh, the fact that as a believer that you might be called to suffer. Then in Galatians 5.13, as a believer, however, you are also called to freedom without the constraints of law and tradition. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, 
Paul also adds that our calling is also that in which we were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. So now when we go back here to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul, he gives this list which should be true of all believers in which children of God should live faithfully in humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in what? Love. In love. But then verse 3 continues to the point from which we will focus on in this message. And here it is. Believers should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Believers should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it says. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And you know, unity is one of the most difficult things to maintain. Especially when you have a culture that focuses on every man for themselves. You go, ho- you go ahead and get yours, and I'll go ahead and get mine. Right? Nobody really looks out for one another anymore. And no one is really trying to, uh, to put an arm around the next person and say, here, I'm ready to help you. You see, again, it's all about me. It's all about my agenda. And if you can't get with my agenda, then bye-bye. But we know this is not true in every culture. In fact, in some cultures, you uh, used to be known for helping each other out because no one else would. But in one sense, the Jews had less of a problem. Uh, the Jews had less of a problem identifying themselves uh, as, as one unit because they looked out after one another. Many things were accomplished through the family. Many things were accomplished through the synagogue. And many things were accomplished through that nation. This is why, however, that Israel, that they were taken captive by foreign powers. Because also, as a nation, they rejected God. That as a group, they were disobedient towards God Himself. This is why, at His first advent, Jesus Uh, said that the entire nation of Israel stood condemned. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, Jesus said that, you know, I came to gather you as God's children to myself. But yet, you did not want me. That the prophets that were sent, the men of God, and the women of God that were sent, that that you stoned many of them. That you killed them. They were not willing to be gathered to the Lord because they were unified in their disaffections for Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, even uh, David, who's known as a king, who's known as a priest, who's known as a prophet, speaks 
of the goodness of the unity in the Old Testament. Uh, come on with me to Psalm 133, verse 1 and 3. 1 through 3. Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. Uh, David says this, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. You see what King David is saying to us? He says, for there the Lord has commanded his blessing. Which blessing is that? Or which, which blessing occurs? When people are unified, it is the presence of God himself. So David says it's good and pleasant for brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, sisters and brothers to live in unity. Now, if you don't think that it's good and pleasant to dwell in unity, then spend a little time dwelling in disunity. Spend a little time when folks are, are, are mad at you. Think about your family or your workplace environment when there is no unity there. Think, think about how it disrupts the peace that's there, how it, it just shakes you up on the inside when there is no unity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Unity is like the precious oil on the head of Aaron running down his beard and down the collar of his robe. Well, what on earth does that mean? What does that have to do with, with unity? Well, as you know, Aaron, he wore his priestly garments, right? And as they anointed him for service, you can imagine uh, that they anointed his head. I mean, they oiled him up real good, amen? It was, it, it was the good stuff. So uh, they poured the oil on his head, and as the oil began to come down and through his beard and on the collar of his robes, because he had multiple robes on, uh, that ultimately what ended up happening was that oil also began to dribble down onto his breastplate. Remember the breastplate? The breastplate that had 12 jewels in it, and each jewel represent one of the tribes of Israel. So as that oil was coming down, it began to dribble all the way down into uh, the jewels that was on his chest. And that anointing be began to touch, in a symbolic way, all of the tribes of Israel, all twelve. And how Aaron himself, he represented the nation. So as the oil flowed, flowed down, and the oil simply meant that Aaron was being consecrated. He was being sanctified. And as Aaron is being sanctified, the nation itself is being sanctified too before God. Amen? So Aaron was one individual chosen by God in some sense, to represent the entire nation. So the blessings that Aaron received, the nation received. The atonement of sins Aaron brought forth 
was accepted on behalf of the entire nation. So as the high priest went in to bring atonement on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, before God, uh, that God accepted that. So Aaron represented millions of people, millions of people, who could not step into the presence of God, else their life would be in their own hands. So that oil represents the presence of God and His desire to be engaged with those who are His children. Therefore, as Aaron would be consecrated as priest, the people, again, they would be consecrated as a nation. Where are you going with this? Well, okay. Many of you already know that Jesus Christ, or, or the word Christ, is another word for anointed one. You see where I'm going with this? You got it already? Amen. Uh, if you have accepted by faith, Christ, as your Redeemer, you too have experienced His blessings as they flow down to you as well. As the sacrifice of Jesus is accepted by God the Father, you will be accepted by God through faith alone. As His blood flows down from Calvary to those who accept Him by faith, and faith alone that His blood covers you, and the Spirit enters you. And now the anointing that was true of Jesus is also true of you. Jesus who becomes our first fruit of all those who would come afterwards, who would be accepted by God Himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21-22. And it is God who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a matter of fact, let's just read verse 21. Together, please. Let's read this together. Here we go. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Good enough. Has anointed us. You see, the anointing that was on the head of Jesus Christ, that it flows down from Him and it flows to us. Flowing from Calvary. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that unites all believers. And guess what? There is nothing that you can do about it. Accepting Christ also means that you're accepting everyone else who has believed in Him. Amen? So even though someone may not worship like you do, even though someone may not go to church at the same time that you go to church, even though someone may wear shorts when they go to church, know that it is the blood of Jesus Christ that flows from Calvary. Calvary flows to you as well. And they are your brothers and sisters in the Lord. But understand the craftiness of the adversary who attempts to incite havoc in the earth and then in the church. In his address to the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts, Paul says this, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 
28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. To do what? To draw away the disciples after them. So, here, the scripture says that there is some who want to enter the church to cause havoc within God's church. In order for this devastation to occur, some enter the church scheming to bring about disunity and sowing the seeds of strife. This is true not only for the church of Ephesus, but also for every church which has existed and that will exist until Jesus Christ comes back. So what are some other enemies of, the, of unity within God's church? What are some of the enemies of unity within God's church? Very quickly, Luke chapter 11, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So in other words, uh, Jesus himself says that if there is not unity, even within the church, that it is weakened. Well, it's also true that Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. That's also true. But nevertheless, he also warns us of the possibility of division. Paul dealt with it in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> so one of the first enemies of unity within the church is tradition. Tradition is one of the disunifying factors within the church. Tradition is the attitude of people who are accustomed to certain religious activity in which they have learned in the church. Tradition often masks itself as being biblical, but without the biblical basis to support itself. Well, what are you talking about? In Matthew 15, 3. As Jesus was speaking to the, the Pharisees. And again, understand that uh, the Pharisees themselves, and you must understand this, even though sometimes we have a picture of the Pharisees being bad, understand that the reason that they came into place was to try to be right before God. But eventually, their religiousity, it, it ended up pulling them away from God and moving them towards tradition. Uh, Matthew 15, 3, And he, Jesus, answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Jesus was saying the things they created to help uh, make them closer to God had evolved to the point of being more important than God himself and his word. You, you hear what I'm saying? See, sometimes you can set up and put things in place to the point that they become more important than your relationship with God and the word. I've heard, I've heard people say all kind of, uh, all kind of crazy things in the church. Maybe I shouldn't say crazy, but they were crazy. They were crazy from my vantage point in the sense that they really did not understand 
how steep in tradition they were. When your church activity is more important than God's word or church unity, then you know there's a problem. Here, let's take it as one example. Let's take the Lord's table. Right? Someone would probably say, well, well, we don't call it the Lord's table. We call it communion. Well, we don't want to call it that. We want to call it the, the, the this. Right? So right off the gate, some people would probably get all roughed up uh, because uh, of what it's called. But we know that what Jesus said was what? He says, do this in what? Remembrance of me. And Paul also commits, uh, uh, repeats the same command, but goes on to add some other things. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? So as we can clearly see, there are no commands for us to either repeat it with a certain regularity, or even to have it at a certain location, right? Even when we look at Acts chapter 2, uh, there is no explicit command anywhere concerning the scheduled time or place of communion. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, very quickly, says, And they devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, many folks understood uh, through looking at church history, that the breaking of bread, that during that time, they often had communion. Now over the years, churches have developed traditions in which communion occurs with a certain frequency. Amen? Some have elected to have communion the first Sunday of every month. They said that, look, you need to have communion the first, why, the first, why not the second Sunday? Why not the third Sunday? Why not the fourth Sunday? Or why not the fifth Sunday every month that they have five Sundays? But is there anything wrong with having communion the first Sunday of every single month? And the, and the church would say, yeah, let's try it again. And the church would say, Come on, you, 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 all right now, all right, you, you're getting me scared now. But I also know churches that have elected to have communion once every three months, every quarter. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. Some have elected to have communion every single time believers get together. So every time that you walk in the church, every time that there's anything going as a corporate body uh, within the church, there's communion going on. Is there anything wrong with that? No. And then those, there are those who have communion when they sense it's time to have communion, then they have it. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you feel in your heart when you hear these different variations that you're beginning to get stressed out, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. If you begin to feel tension and stress in your heart when we listed these different options and 
and people said, no, nothing wrong with it. No, nothing wrong. And your heart said, oh, yes, it is, because so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And all I got to do is say, show it to me. It's not here. Scripture tells us that we should have communion, but that does not tell us where or when. Amen? Amen. So if it causes you undue stress when you hear this, you are steeped in tradition. In other words, it's always been done a certain way. And the way that you've always had it, that is the godliest way to do it. I've seen communion happen in all types of ways. All types of ways. And the important, is, the important thing is, is to make sure that Jesus Christ is central when you're having communion. And the church says what? Amen. But the enemy of unity would enter the church and sow a seed of discontent and doubt because communion is not celebrated in certain ways or at specific times. The spirit of traditionalism can become so agitated by your freedom in Christ that it will attempt to disrupt the flow of worship, either directly or through some behavior or a spirit uh, that they carry inside of them. So sometimes, uh, with the spirit of tradition, uh, uh, that, that I've discovered that it is not just in what they say, but also it is within the spirit that they carry. I always tell people sometimes, I say, you know what? Uh, in essence, you can't hide from the Spirit. The Spirit of God certainly knows. The idea of traditionalism goes far beyond the place and time of communion. But it also includes matters like, what about the pews? Shouldn't the pews be a certain color? Or someone may say that, you know what? We're going to rip out all the pews in the church. And then we're going to replace them with, with chairs. Some people say, that's not of God. And some people will walk into a service like ours and hear uh, uh, Elder Davis uh, playing uh, improvisation on Wade in the water and say, there is the devil. Well, <laughs> I, I wasn't playing, right? <laughs> They'll look at Leandro and say, there is the devil incarnate. I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I'm telling you the truth that there are some churches that when they see the drums, they believe that that church is out of the will of God. Do you know that? They will tell you that that church is out of the will of God because there's a drum set sitting in there. Now, to be honest, and you already know the rest, should we sing contemporary Christian songs or should it be hymns? Is it okay for ladies to wear pants in church? Or should they always wear dresses, not just in church, but also even to work? Or should, ladies, should you wear makeup or no makeup? Well, what about the colors of the wall? Well, I think in order for this place really to be what God wants it to be, the colors of the walls need to be X, Y, and Z. See, those types of things create disunity within the body of Christ. 
you name it, and there is a person that is uncomfortable with something to possibly causing disunity within the church. Amen? Now, uh, honestly, there are things uh, that matter. Things that are important to the church, like the centrality of Jesus Christ. Like the centrality of God's Word. These things are important. It is important to have teachings on the Trinity. Eternal security, these are important. The divinity of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of God, the sin of mankind, and so on and so forth. There are issues that do matter. And that they must be spoken about within the church. But understand that tradition again, it is the enemy of unity. Remember the Pharisees were trying to entrap Jesus based on their traditions and not the Word of God. Amen? Another enemy of unity within the church, refusing to overlook small things. Refusing to overlook small things. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. The wise guy says, God's good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. In the Holman Christian Standard Version, it says, A person's insight gives him patience, and his true and his virtue is to overlook an offense. You know, for some folks, every issue in the church is an issue. Every issue in the church is a big issue. Did you know that? I think sometimes if you are in this group, you get out of bed just looking for a fight. You don't get out of bed wanting to worship God. You just get out of bed. What's wrong with the church? You know, that thing has really been on my mind. You know, I don't like the, I don't like the this, I don't like the that, and I don't like the so on and so forth. But as you grow older and wiser and closer to the Lord, hopefully, you begin to understand that at times, real wisdom is to overlook a matter. You know, there are times in which we must exercise grace towards folks. Ephesians, again, 4.2, it tells us to deal with people with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Maybe someone has said a cross word to you. Maybe today somebody looked at you a little funny. And you looked at them and you said, okay, I know exactly what they're saying. And I can't wait to get to them. Well, you don't know exactly what they're saying. But I want you to know that if you're going to live on God's planet, you better be ready to be offended because there's always somebody to offend you somewhere. You can't even, you can't even go sometimes. I know some of you, you can't even go to the drive-thru at McDonald's to order a Happy Meal without being offended. Because somebody is going to offend you. Can't go to the grocery store. You can't go shopping from clothes. You're always mad at something. If you're going to be wise, that you and I, we must learn to overlook a matter. Don't walk around with a chip on your shoulder. 
Because if you have a chip on your shoulder, somebody's going to want to knock it off. And when they start knocking that chip off your shoulder, they may accidentally get your head too. And you know, sometimes people make mistakes. You know that? Sometimes even, did you know that sometimes there are people who simply don't know? They don't even know about themselves. Which leads us to the next enemy of unity in the church. Because I know some of you are saying, yeah, yeah, I know that, but what about, but what about, what about, what about, what about? So here is the next enemy of unity in the church. It is not confronting habitual offenses. Not confronting habitual offenses. All right, on the one hand, we are to be patient and we to be kind with people. And we are to overlook a matter when some small offense occurs. And I know this, for some it may feel like a contradiction, but it, but it isn't, because it's different. But now we must get into those times when offenses are occurring with great frequency and regularity. When you are constantly being offended without addressing the issue, there are emotions and thoughts which begin to build up on the inside of you. When you know that somebody is messing with you, right? And see, the problem is, when we don't deal with it, uh, uh, for some of us, we allow it to build up, right? And you allow it to build up to the point, and then finally, they offend you that one last time, because you go to church, you know what? If they say one more thing to me, I'm just going to go off. I can go off. You go into church trying to worship the God, uh, trying to worship God, and the only thing you can think about, if they say just one more thing to me, look at me in a cross way, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to blow, I'm going to tell them something up in church, and I don't care what Pastor Spencer thinks. You see? You may begin to feel resentful. You can't even worship God. And harbor negative attitudes about another person within the body of Christ. In fact, some of you, when you reach a certain point, when it's time for believers to gather, you know you're supposed to do that because I know I'm supposed to do this, but you really don't want to come. You don't want to come because you know if they're going to be there, I don't want to be there. Look, never allow anyone to mess up your worship. Don't allow anyone to mess up your relationship with Jesus Christ. The problem here is that you're not operating. That's right, you are not operating according to Scripture by not confronting the issue. It may not be just the person who you think is the enemy uh, to unity, but now you have become a part of the problem because both, both of you all are out. Both of you all are, are walking in disobedience. So by ignoring the fact that there needs to be a confrontation, you help create an atmosphere where the enemy causes spiritual fracking. The enemy can cause spiritual fracking. What is spiritual fracking? I know you may not have heard it before because I just made it up. Spiritual fracking is when the enemy comes and he inserts all that junk into your spirit. Right? He inserts, he inserts, he inserts, he inserts, he inserts, he inserts, he inserts. And eventually what happens is it creates so much pressure that it releases a torrent of stuff. And in the case 
of spiritual fracking. It releases a torrent of, of negative feelings, bad feelings towards someone else. And then you blow up. Matthew 18 and 15. Jesus tells us, if your brother sins against you, do what? Go and tell him his fault. Between you and who? Him alone. Look, right? So the first time something happened, or whatever it is, what? Don't, don't start gossiping. Amen? Now, if it's someone who can't help themselves, that's a different story. You need to get some help. You need a mature brother and sister in the Lord to walk beside you. But if you know better, if you're more mature in the Lord, when there's an issue, you go and deal with them between you and them alone. Because what if they did it and they didn't realize what they were doing? Right? Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained what? A brother or, or sister. So if they listen to you, you have gained a brother or sister. Very quickly, and I'm done. One more enemy of unity in the church is not maturing in the faith. When you have been going to church and you are at the same maturity level that you were when you first accepted Jesus Christ, you can become an enemy of the church. Because for some folks, they become jealous of others who mature so quickly. Wow, well, why is, I don't understand. Why is this person doing this and I've been here all this time? Because you're not maturing. Well, I don't understand how they, how they know what they know because you, you're not working out your salvation. I don't understand, but you know, they're, they're the this and they're the that because you're not maturing, my brother and sister. You must understand how the devil schemes. We must understand the place of tradition, learn how to overlook the small things and the important things we need to deal with them. And all of this in order to walk all these different ways that we must be mature in the Lord. Unity is extremely important to the church. And we can't miss it. It's so easy to either take it for granted or pretend that there is unity when there is none. So we must be champions of unity and fight for it because there is a lot at stake. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do everything that you can within your power to maintain and to keep unity in God's church. Let's pray.